Hello and welcome to Cronscast, the official podcast of SFF Chronicles, the world's largest SFF community. I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Christopher Bean. Uh, this episode we'll be talking about Philip Pullman's young adult fantasy novel Northern Lights, first published in 1995 by Scholastic UK. It's a story set in a parallel universe following the journey of Lyra to the Arctic in search of her missing friend Roger and her imprisoned uncle Lord Asriel who has been conducting experiments with a mysterious substance known as dust. Along the way, she encounters the mysterious and dangerous Mrs. Coulter and her file monkey, uh, traveling people known as Egyptians, armored polar bears, clans of witches, and the charismatic Texan aeronaut Lee Scoresby. Northern Lights is the first novel in his trilogy, His Dark Materials, and it won the 1995 Carnegie Medal from the Library Association. It was adapted into the 2007 film The Golden Compass and more recently and more successfully, I would say, uh, into the 2019 BBC TV series His Dark Materials, starring Daphne Keane, Amir Wilson, Ruth Wilson and James McAvoy. And to talk about Northern Lights, we're joined by the author Stephen Plummer. Stephen is an extraordinarily prolific genre writer. And since his 1996 debut Memory Scene, published by Orbit Books, He's published 20 genre novels, including Hairy London, The Rat and the Serpent, The Factory Girl Trilogy and Tommy Capkins. Generally, Stephen's books tackle themes of the environment and social injustice, but that's not always the case. His novel Beautiful Intelligence was a look at AI, artificial intelligence, that's detached from the ideas of spirit and consciousness. While his novel The Autist took a more dystopian perspective with its evocation of people enslaved to algorithms. Stephen's upcoming novels include The Conjurer Girl Steampunk Trilogy and Cybergon, a near-future novel set in China which looks at the damage social media is doing to children. And on top of all of that, in 2021, Stephen made his non-fiction debut with a book about one of his favourite musical groups. The book's called Tangerine Dream in the 70s, about the hugely influential German electronica pioneers. And welcome to you, Stephen, and thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Thank you. Right. Well, so you elected to talk about Northern Lights for our very first episode. Uh, so I'd like to ask you, when you first encountered Northern Lights, did you read it when, you first, uh, when it was first published or some other point? Um, I read it um, a few years after it was published. Um, at, the, at the end of the late 1990s, I was living in Devon and um, I was actually working for Waterstones um, in Exeter. So I started working there in 1998. Uh, and that gave me an immediate insight into um, the hot books at the moment of the moment. Uh, and of course, Harry Potter was was, you know, huge then. Um, I kind of spotted Northern Lights because, um, as is fairly well known, I think now, um, I am an atheist. And one of the themes of my writing is um, the place of religion and the reason that we have religion in human societies. So that was an immediate draw for me. Um, I have to admit, I did like the cover. I've got my my um, three copies here of my of the novels. Um, interestingly, um, the, the Scholastic uh, edition, which you mentioned, was actually published in two versions with a um, more YA friendly cover um, and an adult cover, which, as you know, they did for Harry Potter. Um, so I've got the adult cover for Northern Lights, and then I've, for some reason I've got the two um, YA covers for the other books. Um, 
but I did absolutely love them. Um, I, I guess I must have read them at the very end of the 1990s. Um, I remember when I was working at Waterstones, I was in charge of the stockroom for the Exeter branch. Um, and the big draw of 2001 was the amber spyglass. Um, so we had vast, huge quantities of this book coming in under embargo as well. It had to be stored under embargo. So it was all, you know, very hush hush and top secret. Um, so I, I remember the, um, the, you know, the kind of um, love that was being given for this book and the sort of the big fuss that was being made about it. And, you know, you don't in, you don't embargo any old book. Um, the Harry Potter books were embargoed. And I, I seem to remember that the Amber, Amber Spyglass, I'm pretty certain it was stored over the weekend, actually, but I can't remember now. Um, so, yeah, so I read them at the end of the 90s and then uh, the Amber Spyglass in 2001. And um, for the first two novels, I really, really enjoyed them. I thought The Subtle Knife was, even though I love Northern Lights, the thing that really stood out for The Subtle Knife was this depiction of a 12-year-old boy um, looking after his ill mother. Um, so in the BBC adaption, this is very sensitively done. Um, you know, mental um, mental illness. We 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 can call it that. I think um, mental um, mental health issues that people have. Um, we in this country, I feel, are very poor at discussing this stuff. Um, I have in my own life with my with people close to me, I have had hideous encounters with issues of mental health. So this is something that's very close to my heart. Um, and it really, really struck me and really moved me how Philip Pullman wrote about this relationship between um, this young lad and his mother, brilliantly portrayed, as I said, in the BBC adaption, really superbly portrayed. Um, so I loved The Subtle Life at least as much as Northern Lights, which, as you know, I think is generally read as a fantastic novel. Um, I have to say the Amber Spyglass for me was a pretty much a fairly big letdown. Um, it struck me that as with J.K. Rowling's fourth novel, um, the editors didn't dare take their hatchet to it. Um, you know, I forget the title of J.K. Rowling's fourth novel now, but it's about two or three Goblin times. Of fire. Yes, that's the one. Yes, it's about two or three times as big as the other ones, um, and. It did strike me, uh, and well, I mean, not just me, loads of people, um, that, you know, because of her mushrooming fame at that point, um, that the, the editors the editor maybe didn't didn't dare take the knife to, to that book. And that is certainly the case in my view for the Amber Spyglass. So what would have, um, what, what, what do you have, uh, what would you have streamlined? Much of the middle third. Um the middle third for me was, um, you know, a, a highly um, um, Milton-esque ramble through various levels of, 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 of um, abstract. Could you be referring to, by any chance, the, the, the creatures with the trunks and the, the, the ones that move around on wheels? and Mulefa, the Mulefa. That's it, the Mulefa. Um, it's nothing specific, to be honest with you. Um, I've just read your blog, Dan, about um, uh, the influence of Milton. Um, I read it when you published it, actually, because I was aware that this was relating to me. Um, and I was really struck by, you know, what a terrific analysis that is. But I've just read it again. Um, and um, um, you're right. Um, Pullman did want to not just evoke Paradise Lost, 
that I think follow it. Well, I think it's a re- it, it's quite explicit in saying that Northern Lights, well, his Dark Materials in, in its entirety, it's uh, it's a retelling of the same story, and that the that the parallels between the two stories are right there. And Paradise Lost itself is a retelling of the Genesis story of Adam and Eve and the awakening of mankind. So just um, just for anybody out there who's not aware, Paradise Lost is the epic poem written by John Milton, the English epic, uh, poet John Milton in the 17th century. And uh, I think it was, to, it was towards the end of his life in maybe around 16, the 1660s, I believe, but uh, that's off of the top of my head. And it tells the story of Satan, who's cast as a romantic or a chaotic hero, really, um, who's stranded in hell, in pandemonium, after being cast out of heaven, after the war in heaven with God, and he decides to exact his revenge against God. But he decides that God is quite a dangerous and mysterious character, which is fair enough, and so he decides to not go after God directly, but to attack his his greatest, uh, most beloved creations, which is mankind. And so the story is that Satan removes the scales from the eyes of mankind by tempting Eve into original sin. And uh, his dark materials is essentially a retelling of that story, uh, which which becomes fairly apparent uh, quite quickly into the piece, although we don't get the, the revelation that Lyra uh, is the, the avatar of Eve into uh, until some way into the subtle knife. But there was, there was a lot in your first response to unpack there. You know, you're right that the... If we go back a little bit, um, there was this period in the mid '90s where you had this these two huge adult series that came out uh, seemingly out out of nowhere, really, and they they were sort of culture defining, epoch defining, really. Uh, oh, Harry Potter has an entire industry built off it, and if you you can't say quite the same of his dark materials, you're quite right. There was an enormous amount of love and affection. And it's one of those rare books that goes from being <clears throat> genre fiction, a, 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 a solid plant your flag in the sand. It's a fantasy fiction. And it's not just fantasy, it's young adult fiction. And it just crosses over into the mainstream. So well, I, I wonder, what, do, you, do you think there's any anything to that period in the 90s when Rowling and when Pullman were writing that there was this uh, something in the air that uh, that allowed these very very fantasy uh, styled books to cross over into the mainstream. Um, to be honest, I don't. Um, I, I think there may have been elements of of corporate publishing that fed into that. I mean, you know, since um, uh, Jane Johnson's fantastic work at HarperCollins with Tolkien in the eighties, fantasy has um, snowballed, you know, slowly into larger and larger things. Um, my view is that what really tipped it over the edge was actually just um, luck, serendipity. She became very, very popular in America with the third book. Um, and then that sudden increase in popularity in that country. I mean, you know, they have a population five times as large as Britain. Um, so um, now <laughs> I know I am on record on, on Crons um, as being the... Um, the um, the well, what should we say? The vicar of luck, um, the 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 person who ascribes so much to luck, and and um, I've I've kind of been discussing this recently with friends. Um, it's been pointed out to me that I use the the word luck um, erroneously. Sometimes it is serendipity, 
Um, I do believe very strongly that that we authors um, owe far more to luck than to any other resource. I mean, you have to have something to say. You have to have talent. You have to be able to use words and you have to have something inside you that needs to come out through words. But given that, the other 99% is, is, is luck. Um, and I think... Um, I think J.K. Rowling was lucky. She she wrote a terrific first book, which was spotted by by somebody and was taken on. And they said to her, you know, oh yeah, you'll you'll sell five hundred, but don't give up the day job. Um, so you know that that was a true reflection of where she was then. Um, I I'm not sure about about Philip Pullman. He did have um, a um, a good profile before, mm. and he was well known as a a writer of finely crafted books. Um, but again, I'm not I'm not entirely convinced that we could pin down why Northern Lights did so well, um, even in retrospect, because because there are there are so many strange aspects to to why um, novels become popular, why they sell particular quantities. Um, well, you, the one thing you mentioned earlier, which is pertinent, you mentioned you're you're an atheist and the book deals with. Well, I think personally, I think Pullman is coming at this from the perspective of of an atheist, and he's making the case that you don't necessarily need God in order to make the the Republic of Heaven uh, on Earth. And that the idea, I mean, you talk, uh, you're talking about luck as well. And I think one of the central themes of the of of not just Northern Lights but the whole trilogy is to to act. Is you've got to act, and I think it's Lyra says it herself towards the end of book three that the whole point of your life is to act and you've got to do. So even if you are an author, to bring it back to, to us and, the, and, the, and our craft and what we try to do when we're writing a manuscript, you have to do, you have to put yourself out there. You, have, you can't stay in the cave. You have to be not just inspired to do it, but to go and act it out. Um, but I, think you're absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. And of course, the corollary, the corollary of what you've just said is that if you act, you must be a moral being. Um, the whole point of, of morals is that you face choices and you act and you, and you make those choices. So I think you're spot on there. Well, yeah. And, and um, I was really struck, Dan, by your reference in your blog to the fact that even though um, Philip Pullman is a, a famous atheist, actually the book is at least as much about the church. It is a very anti-church book. Um, you could argue, actually, that it's, it's, it is an anti-God book in some respects, but actually really his main target is the church and the catholic church in particular i think that's clear yeah it becomes clear that it, it's less anti-god as as the book goes goes forward uh, god is referred to as the authority in the book it's quite clear but uh, it's the the authority doesn't lie with the authority the authority lies with those who were working in his name on earth so the, yeah there's the, and there was a there, there was definitely a, a an atheism movement bubbling away it was probably still more of a subculture i think in the 90s but uh, in, as the turn of the millennium uh, came then there was definitely a spike in in ideas surrounding new atheism and i think Pullman's book probably at the vanguard of that you know with people like dawkins and sam harris and hitchens um, so it, it's definitely um, and they always say the artists get there first and Pullman is, is getting there he's not the first because you know the People like Nietzsche were saying it a long time before that, a hundred years before. But the artists generally get there first, and he was there like five or ten years before 
anybody else in terms of driving this this uh, this period of new atheism. For what it's worth, I I don't and I wrote this down. You may have noticed. I don't think he fully succeeds. Yes, I just, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he actually ends up making the case that um, yeah, he's he, you're not actually disproving the, the existence of anything. You're more making the case for acting, which yes. is the what you would say is the driving force for most religious uh, belief anyway, is the drive to act and act in, in specifically in the right way. Yeah. But um, he has yeah. rolled back slightly from his position, I think, in the first two books. I think he has um, moderated his position slightly. Um, it's in, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, the... I mean, this is another reason I'm not, I'm not that massively keen on the third book. I mean, it's a bit of a damp squib at the end. Um, now, let me tell you a story which which was which may intrigue you. And um, when I worked for Waterstones, we had an in-house magazine, which um, was brought out I think once every quarter. Um, and Philip Pullman was one of the guests in one of the issues. And we were all us booksellers were, were asked to send him questions, um, which he would answer in a big article in one of the Waterstones magazines. So I, as you might imagine, got involved with this. And I asked him, I can't remember the exact question now. I've been looking for this um, issue of this magazine, which is, is somewhere in my house, but I just cannot find it. But basically my question was, did Philip Pullman think that he was um, debasing and diminishing his atheist credentials by using the symbols of religion? Um, so um, he answered this in a very interesting way. He said that that was a, an intriguing question. And that, on balance, he thought he was not diminishing his atheist credentials by using the symbols of religion. Um, so, interesting answer. I, I personally don't agree with that. Um, I think he did, by using such clear um, and obvious symbols, even though he, you know, he had a target he was gunning for, I think that always does diminish um, slightly uh, your case. Um, it's kind of similar to this thing on social media, isn't it, where, you know, people say, rather than bashing the things you hate, talk about the things you love. Um, I was really struck by that when I first got onto social media about 10 years ago. Um, and I very rarely um, do sort of um, bashing people, even even Donald Trump. Um, I did write a lot about Donald Trump on my blog, but it was kind of like to try and understand why he was so extraordinarily dangerous rather than actually saying, oh, I hate Donald Trump, oh, I hate you've done this, I hate you've done that. Um, so, um, but that was a really intriguing answer, I thought, that he, he thought he hadn't diminished um, his case by using the symbols of religion. Well, let's let's dig into the, the book itself then, and uh, because the, the, there are plenty of symbols uh, scattered all around the book, and there are clear parallels. It's going back to Paradise Lost very quickly, and Chris, Chris has very helpfully noted that it was 1667, so I'm going to give myself a pat on the back for getting 1660s correct. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, the old, uh, the, the, the degree knowledge has not quite left my brain just yet. Um, there are loads of symbols and, and uh, icons that are scattered all around uh, Northern Lights, and I think the, one of the most potent ones is, uh, is the demons. And Chris, you had a good quote about the demons, didn't you? Yeah, he's uh, he's said uh, demons are saying something about the business of being human um, in an interview, which is much more speaks towards the, the more humanist side of this linking with the atheistic stuff rather than talking about the um, religious stuff we've just been talking about. And I wonder how much 
when Stevens just said, you know, he seems to have backtracked over the past few years. I wonder how much of that is down to the backlash, because I know everything stays on the Internet forever. So all those interviews, you know, when you've been doing research for this episode, reading that stuff, there was a lot of bashing going on. A lot of the stuff, especially, I mean, I, the church is very knee-jerk reaction to any kind of criticism anyway. Um, and I wonder maybe if that is why, when you were at Waterstones, sorry, yeah, Waterstones, that, um, you know, he he might have changed somewhat now. I think so, yes. Um, I think I think he, I think he has... If he has backtracked, it is only a little. I think what he's done is he has sophisticated and enhanced his argument. I, I don't think his actual moral stance or his ethical stance has changed one iota. I think probably what's happened is that in the... I mean, he has had an extraordinary level of success, and that changes you. Even a man as comparatively advanced in years as Philip Pullman when he, was, when he had his success, it does change you. Um, and he will have he will have had to have um, worked out on the fly how to respond to this extraordinary level of, of success of having you know vast numbers of of people slag him off for things that he said. So yeah. Uh, well, that kind of, that's part of the course, isn't it? Whenever you become that level of big, that that does become part of the course. But um, I. He's on record as also being a, a very staunch champion of freedom of speech, as you would expect most writers to be, I think. And that also brings him in line with, with his predecessor, John Milton, who also wrote a, uh, a defence of free speech called Aria Pagitica, which was railing against uh, government censorship of the day. So, you, you know, that, that in itself shows that stuff doesn't really change. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, so I think he would... We can't speak for Philip Pullman here, obviously. We can't put words in his mouth. We're simply discussing his works. But I, I would imagine that he would be staunchly defensive of anybody to say whatever they like because, well, that's the position that he's taken. And one of the ironies is that later, uh, a few years after the Amber Spyglass was published, he ended up being defended and applauded by the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's right, yes. And uh, he he's now, well, in recent times... He's, he's uh, shot to fame all over again with the BBC, the marvellous BBC adaptation of his Dark Materials, which it really, really is fabulous. Maybe we can talk about that. And But he's, he's sort of shot to fame all over again and his star is shining brightly. And that means that, again, he's been getting brickbats over uh, comments that he made on Twitter a little while ago. And uh, so it, um, it doesn't really change. But I think a lot of people do mellow as they advance in years. Um, but yeah, if we go back to the demons because they they are. I mean, let's get in really into the in the weeds of the book. Really, uh, that's that's what I, I what I would like to do is maybe draw out some of the tools and the techniques that, that Pullman is using that makes this a particularly good book. And there are so many things. I mean, I I would like to talk about the armored bears and what they what they represent and how he how he uses them. But the demons are particularly clever uh, as they, they are sort of a, a reflection of the human soul that's a, a, um, a guide and also a protector and uh, a conversation point as well. So I, I, I wanted to, to get your opinion on, on the idea of the demons, uh, what's the meaning behind them, how far do they go? Yeah. Um, 
I have a very specific um, attitude to this because of my own particular beliefs and work. Um, Philip Pullman is on record um, as having said that one of the reasons he invented uh, Lyra's Demon in the first place is that when you start a novel, um, if it's just one character doing something or discovering something or going on a journey, that character has nobody to bounce ideas off. There's no conversation, there's no dialogue. So he, he, there, was, he, he there was an interview somewhere quite early on, I think, where he said that actually one of the inspirations for Lyra's demon was to give Lyra someone to talk to when she was um, hiding in the in the wine cabinet or wherever it is she hides uh, and all the subsequent adventures. Now, obviously, he did sophisticate that enormously afterwards. Um, the problem I have with that, and that actually, when I when I wrote my question to Philip Pullman for the Water, Waterstones magazine, that was actually what I had in mind, because I have a very particular, um, one might even say vehement uh, attitude to the concept of spirit or soul, as anybody who's read my books will know. Um, I think this is a particularly, in my view, this is humanity's oldest idea. I think this idea goes back 100,000 years, if not longer, to the very, very start of of um, human life where we tell stories and we imagine stories and we imagine ourselves in stories. It's an incredibly ancient idea, I think. And this is why this idea has got extraordinary inertia and such very, very deep roots in our cultures. Um, so I I really feel that in, in using, even though the demons are a lovely idea, and I love the idea that they are, they are um, mutable uh, until... Um, puberty that, that's a terrific idea it, it says so much about what philip philip Bullman wanted to do about um the attitude of the catholic church in particular to sex and sexual relations it just says it all it's a beautiful idea but i but it's, it's also it's also very sophisticated psychology uh, psychologically as well uh, yes. even, even if you take away the religious element it's the fact that you you're completely malleable and you you have infinite potential when you're younger you could be anything that you absolutely want to be yes and but, i think that is true but as, but as you grow those those options narrow and you have to choose so I mean, it's going back to the idea of choice and acting as well you have to choose to be something to be something otherwise you're nothing yes no i agree i think it i think you're you're correct i mean obviously pullman's idea is that there is a very specific change when you hit puberty which has a very specific relations, relationship to how the Catholic Church in particular sees this stuff. Uh, but I, I do agree. Um, my beef really is only a very personal beef. It's, it's my, you know, one of the things I enjoy writing about is why do we have this extraordinary idea that we have this immaterial spirit or soul inside us? It's an absolutely ridiculous idea if you look at it um, from certain perspectives. But it was an absolutely essential idea, in my view, in very, very early human societies, Neanderthal societies, possibly. I read a lot about the Neanderthal um, species. Well, um, it's, yeah. Philip Pullman, or the Northern Lights, let's just let's just stick with that. Um, it doesn't just exist in the present day. I mean, it's, well, it does, but there are constant references to the antiquity of the human, you know, the dawning of the human age, or the, what, it, if the, one of the major themes is the trepanning, the, the, which is the drilling of these, the human skulls to let the angels in, an ancient custom that sounds brutal. It sounds like a, a torture uh, session, something you would do to, to torture somebody, but actually it was a great honour 
bestowed upon the, the ancient shamans to let the angels in or let the dust in, as they say in Lyra's world. And yeah, it's, 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 it's an extremely old idea and it won't go away. It won't go away. I, the de- I think that the demons, when I was reading it, the, the demons to me, they evoke um, Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio. Yes, yes. It's, it's very similar. And, it, and yes, you know, it, the idea of Jiminy Cricket is great because he's a bug and your conscience bugs you, doesn't it? It's something that's always bugging you. Um, and, and the demon is the same thing. I like that. I didn't realize that, he, that uh, Pan is essentially just somebody for Lyra to talk to. I think that was it. wasn't That wasn't the only idea, but he's on record as saying that that was something that occurred to him as he was starting out writing. That that Lyra needed someone to talk to because you you know for dialogue purposes to, to bounce ideas mm-hmm. off, and that's where that idea came from. And then there were other aspects that came in straight away. So, um, but yes, well, that's that's I think as as writers, that's an, a really good example of something as well as what a, an architect or an engineer would saying form would say is form following function. So you've got something there that is really serving the writing itself and serving the idea of propelling the novel forwards and making uh, it engaging, so giving Lyra somebody to talk to. But out of that, he's, he's stretched and pulled all of these very deep strands of meaning and, uh, and uh, possibility, uh, which really become the roots of the book itself. It's, 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 it's very clever. Yes, it is, and of course, and, it's, a, I think it's something that we anybody who's writing, who's, and you know, to bring it back to Crons, there are so many writers. That you're thinking about the nuts and bolts of your of your writing and how to make it work, but then they don't have to be just nuts and bolts. They can turn into and they can evolve into something so much more, which is exactly what the demon itself does. It, it evolves and it becomes something more than it starts out as. Yes, yeah, and of course, there's so much fun to be had with designing demons that, that say things about your characters that otherwise you may not want to say. I mean, obviously, the golden monkey is is perfect for Mrs. Coulter. Um, it's yeah. a lovely metaphor for her, her you know, ex- quite extreme character. Um, that's an interesting thing, actually. I, what do you feel about about how they dealt with Mrs. Coulter and her psychology in the, in the BBC TV adaptions? Because there are only, as I recall, there are only two instances where the reasons why Mrs. Coulter is so extreme are explored. One, I think, is in the um, uh, abscission um, vaults, and one is with Lee Scoresby. I just felt that that wasn't enough. Um, for all that Ruth Wilson's portrayal is stunning, um, I would have liked just a little bit more of her cat so we know why she is quite so extreme. How do you feel about that? Well, in, in the BBC adaptation, I thought it was... It was reasonably clear, especially in the second the second series, when Sir Charles Latram, which is uh, one of the characters from Lyra's own world, but who has established a doorway to our world uh, and uh, has set up a business in Oxford selling antiquities and has amassed a small fortune and bought himself a nice end of terrace house. I think yes. it's even a detached house. Yes, he's clearly doing very well for himself, um, and she. Mrs. Coulter visits him and becomes extremely uh, regretful, remorseful as to what might have been if she had lived in a world where, uh, as a woman, she could have become an academic. This is after she meets Dr. Mary Malone and she's staggered at how free she is. Do you think it's, it's, 
It's, I mean, it's interesting. Just to go off topic from Mrs. Coulter for a sec, for a second, because she is, she's an extraordinary character for a few different reasons. She's she's as complex as Lord Asriel is, and we can go to Lord Asriel as well. But um, Pullman talks about the Catholic Church in Northern Lights and subsequent books. Um, and then he makes a very explicit point that in our world, which is where the Catholic Church is, the we have these these uh, huge degrees of freedoms which are not permitted to the the characters such as Mrs. Coulter in the other world. Uh, in the in Lyra's world, the Cath oh, the the Magisterium haven't undergone that excision of church and state. So the Magisterium is the state, and. In our world, that's not the case. And so you, that leads to enlightenment thinking and it leads to uh, expansion of women's rights and you know, all, of, all of those different things, which you don't need to list here. But it's, it's taken as said that once the church is taken, it has its hand taken off the tiller, then you have all of these different possibilities for expansion and uh, knowledge and, and learning. And Mrs. Coulter, I think, is quite staggered uh, that that wasn't open to her, despite her clear and obvious talents and um, there's there is some there's a lovely description of mrs coulter in um, in the book uh, pullman describes her as smelling of metal and when she gets angry she gets very angry at lyra at one point and at that point she smells of hot metal which to me is the smell of industry it's the domain of men and uh, and that's that's the point with Mrs. Coulter. She's very beautiful. She's described as staggeringly beautiful in many cases. She's very refined. She dresses well. She's ultra feminine on the surface level. But below that, she is completely oper uh, operational in the world of men. Uh, and that's out of necessity. And it makes her very complex because she, as we go through the, the trilogy, we find out that she does love Lyra, even though she is extraordinarily cruel to Lyra, especially in the first book. She does love Lyra, but it's been suppressed. So in a sort of a, a, a Freudian sense, there's a, there's a dichotomy going on in Mrs. Coulter where she is the, uh, the protective mother, but that's been corrupted and she becomes what's called the devouring mother, which is where the protection has gone haywire, the protective element of of the feminine of the motherhood has gone haywire and is now some sort of hyper overextended version of itself. And that happens in the Amber spyglass when she takes Lyra away. And what does she do with her? She puts her in a cave and gives her some sort of, some sort of liquid that keeps her asleep. And that's the sleeping beauty story. So it's what happens when you're overbearingly protective of your, of your children and you don't let them engage with the world it's sort of love gone mad, and that's the the, the, the negative element of the feminine, which uh, which you see in Sleeping Beauty, and she's woken up by by Will the Prince eventually, and they go off and have the rest of their adventure. But she is capable of, eventually, she's capable of great love for Lyra, um, but it's suppressed because it has to be, because she's she's an, to make to make the best use of her gifts. She has to take her, the only option that's available to her, which is to work with the magisterium, and it's on mostly it's on their terms. One of the interesting things about the BBC adaptation was that they dared to show her being ambivalent about motherhood. That is a very taboo thing in any Western religious society, which is basically well, is it because it's it, I think it's a very very ancient 
theme in a, in a lot of storytelling. I mean, it's the, it's there in Sleeping Beauty. It's it's there in the story of Snow White. It's it's uh, it runs it runs very. It's a very old idea. It's counterbalanced in Northern Lights with the idea of the the witches who are the extremely positive element of the of the feminine. So it's balanced very well. And Mrs. Coulter, she is, yeah, she is ambivalent. And, and sometimes she's downright malevolent as well. So she's sort of a, a, a corruption of the feminine figure, you, you could say. And she's, she is a masterful character because she's so complex. There's still a great deal of love in, in there, but it's squashed down. But having her represented as ambivalent is still daring, especially these days. Point, really. You know, yes. like Stephen says, it was daring. And I think these days it's becoming normalised. There's not this, you know betrayal of sisterhood by not having a family or a pa- uh, not being a parent if you're a, particularly if you're a woman if you can carry and you don't it's a big it's a big issue and it these days it's becoming a lot more to do with choice um or choice rather is is you know being allowed in terms of uh, social mores and what the, the cultural capital of different countries are and if you look at what's going on in america at the moment with respect to um you know women controlling their bodies you can't divorce a woman's child-bearing ability from from whenever there's a woman involved in a in a story, that is part of her character. It's implicit, and I think if you play with that that archetype and that stereotype, um, you can come up with something like this. Uh, you know, this ambivalence, which is going to make people, uh, certain people, think that there's an element of not treachery to the sisterhood, but something which was expected that is not being upheld? I think most people, even in Britain today, which is a comparatively liberal country, um, uh, I think most people today are still very, very uncomfortable with the idea of women not having children Mm. and being ambivalent about motherhood. And that's really interesting that the BBC chose to portray that in a couple of fairly crucial scenes in the first series. But yeah. But that's critical to her character. I mean, going back to, to, to writing, I mean, there's a good point about writing great characters is to make them complex. I mean, if, you know, Mrs. Coulter may be a lot of things, but she's not one note. There's a lot of, there's a lot of complexity to her. She could go either way. And in some ways you're almost kind of, even though she's a villain and an explicit one at that, it's certainly in Northern Lights, you're kind of rooting for her as well because you want to see what she's up to. Yeah. It's not clear. You, you're, you're kind of on her side because she's, such an anomaly in this uh, hyper uh, male-driven world, which is still controlled by the magisterium. So she's, it's, it's a, I think it's an instructive character. Uh, and, she, and again, she's counterbalanced by Azriel, who has, again, elements of the pos- positive masculine in his desire to protect Lyra. Uh, and his, I mean, even more, actually more pertinently, the, the positive masculine element to sort of go off and, and uh, explore new lands and get new information and expand knowledge. You know, that's all like the positive masculine. But again, it, it, um, it overspills and it corrupts itself and he becomes a tyrant, which is the negative masculine. And he, he's unbearably cruel uh, and he's wicked and he's violent as well. Um, I mean, with the way he, he, he views Roger Parslow when Roger finally turns up at the Arctic Station. He grew. He, he sees him like a wolf. That's yes. how he views him. 
Yeah, which is entirely right. Yeah, that's brilliantly done in the BBC adaption. It was a very moving um, section that, yeah. It was, uh, um, because Lyra turns up and immediately his first thought is, no, 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 this isn't right, because he wants to use a child and sever the child from the demon to create the energy to open a rift in the sky uh, and a portal to another world. And so he's despairing because he doesn't want to kill his own daughter. And then Roger walks in and his eyes change and he becomes like a wolf, seeing the lamb who has wandered into his territory. Monomania, yes. He's, uh, again, very complex character. And and still, even despite doing wicked things, you're kind of rooting for him as well because, again, he's sort of on the cusp of knowledge and thinking of what, what's possible and what's out there. And you kind of want him to succeed in that and see what he's up to. Yes, because he, he clearly has a, a fantastic plan on the go. And of course, that is that is a major plot driver, knowing that he's on the verge of some extraordinary discovery. Um, that's told to the reader many times or the viewer. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, that's a great plot lead through, yeah. Uh, we, we mentioned the witches a little bit. Uh, earlier, Seraphina uh, Pekala and the the, the tribal uh, society that they have up in the, the Arctic North. And uh, one of the things that uh, that they talk about quite explicitly is the the prophecy that surrounds Lyra, and that's that's interesting in itself um, because it it quite clearly marks Lyra out as one of the very typical chosen one characters that you see a lot of. And it'll be interesting to sort of take that apart and what makes a chosen one character and why they're so popular. But um, I'll read a direct quote from Northern Lights, and this is from Serafina Pekela. There is a curious prophecy about this child. She's destined to bring about the end of destiny, but she must do so without knowing what she is doing, as if it were her nature and not her destiny to do so. If she's told what she must do, all will fail. Death will sweep through all the worlds. It will be the triumph of despair forever. Well, what do you make of that, Stephen? It's a very, very profound and intriguing thing. Um, destiny, in my view, is what I call a narcissistic concept. Um, so um, my thoughts about narcissism, I use it in the most general sense possible, which essentially is um, a word which describes not just selfishness, but the way people... Uh, too often can um, look at the world through their own lenses, their own desires, their own language, their own beliefs. Um, Eric Fromm, um, one of my heroes, was a particularly brilliant writer about narcissism. Um, And in my view, destiny is a narcissistic concept. It basically puts an individual at the centre of the world um, when they have no right to be at the centre of the world, because none of us are at the centre of the world, and it artificially puts them in the centre of the world and says the world is relevant to you and the world defers to you, when in fact the reverse is true. We defer to the world. So I think Pullman has hit upon something very, very profound here, that it is part of human moral growth. And in fact, religions, you know, the heart of many religions is this moral growth. Um, this isn't this isn't a humanistic idea at all. This is this is a, a human idea that some religions have taken on board, I mean, including Christianity. Um, so it, it's a very very intriguing um, double bluff. So she is destined to bring about the end of destiny. Now, to, to me, that says 
Lyra, Lyra's um, story and her, um, what do you call it? Her um, uh, expedient path is that she brings about the end of this concept where people put themselves in the center of the world and actually relate to the world in a way which allows the world to show its truth to them. At the moment, I really, I really yeah, like that. Yeah, many human beings at the moment, I think, put their truth before the world and 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 think that the world will defer to that. I think it should be the other way around. And I think that actually it, it should part be. of a religious thought. Hey, here's a really cool thing that I heard uh, not long ago. Uh, the 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 psych this uh, developmental psychologist uh, Jean Piaget Piaget um, he, he yes and and he said he wrote that the the final stage of adolescent development was the messianic stage the messianic complex and it occurs in mid to late adolescence so not quite where Lyra is but she's knocking on the door of it she is and it's exactly that it's a it's a profound drive uh, development in your character that that pushes you and and uh makes you feel like you're the one who's going to change the world you're the one who's going to make a, a real difference in whatever field it is that you're interested in and he 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 earmarked this out as a very specific adolescent phase but then you you go you go out and you you, you act this out and the world slaps you down because that's reality. Let's think and, about why you have to, and like, and, and so I think that fits perfectly with what you just said. I think it's absolutely it. It goes hand in glove. Yeah. Let's think about Philip Pullman um, and why he might have done this. Philip Pullman was a teacher, so Philip Philip Pullman, um, in his in his day job, as it were, understands um, that the teenage years of children, adolescence, are an intensely egotistical. Um, phase of life. Um, he understood that. Um, he, he, he was he is very interesting when he talks about um, how um, because he had taught so many lessons to so many um, children of that rough age group, he said that he saw a Lyra in every single class he taught. He, he, there's always a girl or a character, a boy, a girl character who has that quality of, of slight vituperativeness, independence, you know, cheek, um, brilliance, because Lyra is brilliant as well. Um, yeah. and, you know, cheeky, a liar, as you as you as you have said, and quite blasé as well, and and doesn't understand her place in the world. He sort well, of thinks she does. She thinks she does, but of course, yeah, she doesn't. Yeah, and that um, comes from her having complete and utter agency over herself, which, funnily enough, she doesn't. <laughs> yeah, but those 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 kids in your class, because I what you're talking about. Philip Pullman saying, I can relate to that. You know, I always have kids in my, not in every class, but there is always one across a cohort, at least, that has that nous and, and, and the gumption. And you really, there is some different shine about them. Mm. Yeah, I think Philip Pullman spotted that. And he's on record as saying that that was definitely something that fed into Lyra's character. Yeah. But those of us who are either parents or who have worked with children, uh, young adults, as I do in my in my day job, we know that uh, that age is is an intensely egotistical um, phase of life, and of course that is narcissism, writ, writ clear. Well, I mean, Lyra is a great character. She's a great character for many reasons, and what the fact that she well, she, she thinks she's 
if not perfect, she's, she's got a pretty high opinion of herself. Yeah. And her name, I mean, it's in the Amber Spy class when she's talking to the harpy. And Pullman makes it clear that they're not quite sure whether, har whether the harpy is saying, Lyra, Lyra, or liar, liar. It's, it's across the, you're not quite sure which one it is. But she's she she catch she's caught out by her lies a couple of times. Once with the harpy, but the other time when she's being interrogated in Miss, in Mary Malone's office in the subtle knife. So she she's definitely fallible and she she's brought low by her own hubris a couple of times. So I wonder what 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 it is about her that makes her such a great protagonist from a from a young adult perspective. I think a lot of it is that cheek. It's that it's that desire to push boundaries, which which you know every almost every single young person has experienced that sense of not just actually pushing boundaries, but wanting to push boundaries. I think Lyra is is a brilliant example of that. But of course, Lyra Lyra has a much larger canvas than most ordinary teenagers. You know, you know, if you're at school. That is a that is a comparatively small canvas to push boundaries on with teachers or whoever it might be. Lyra has this extraordinary expanse of world. I mean, she does travel from Britain to Svalbard. How many teenagers have done that? So she does have a much larger um, canvas upon which to work. I think she's a great character. I, I she's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it boils down to her, what you said about teenagers or young people, children. The ones to stick out those those cheeky ones and it just boils down she's charismatic like he's she's been written as a charismatic character he has charisma good points yeah and and i think when a child there are two ways it can go a child can be rude or cheeky to you sorry a child can be cheeky to you there's a diff, there's a thin line between rudeness and you know charisma and i think she that's what he's done really well with lyra i agree yes and yeah. it's it's interesting that even though she yeah she she has infinite possibility and she's her the canvas on which she she paints her herself onto the world is extraordinarily vast you know like you said from oxford to svalbard and then into other worlds yeah. and she is i mean she she does satisfy this uh narcissist what did, what did you call it a narcissistic complex was it well I have to be careful here. I use the word narcissism in a very particular way, in the most general way possible. Narcissism has various meanings in various contexts. It can be a clinically used word. Clinical psychologists will use that word in a very specific setting. Well, I think in a clinical sense, uh, narcissism implies a certain psychopathology. Yes, but, um, I think we're talking about it more in the mythical sense. Much more general, yes, much more yeah. general, which is the sense that I use it. And uh, as I said, my my one of my... Um, great teachers, as it were, Eric Fromm, who was the great um, writer about narcissism, I think, in the 20th century, uh, used it in that very general sense. Uh, I use it in actually in a more general sense even than Eric Fromm uh, in my work, because I'm interested in, in the relationship between the human condition, of which narcissism is one aspect. That's uh, true. Uh, and what Fromm happens with, with... Sorry, Stephen. I was just going to say that Eric Fromm had no um, understanding because he, he was born too early of consciousness. We've only in the last 50 years had a workable theory of human consciousness and he wasn't actually aware of that. So I'm trying to, in some of my work, I try and link those two things together. It's, it, as, <laughs> well, that's, that's quite interesting about um, mentioning consciousness because as soon as Lyra fulfills her destiny, which essentially is the, way, is the awakening of her own adult consciousness, 
she is slapped down by reality. It's right at the end of the amber spyglass. She's forced to separate from Will, which is reality kicking in and saying, sorry, even though you did have this this messianic arc that has um, delivered the world from uh, tyranny and uh, restored what was lost and, and freed individuals from the chain of the magisterium, She's still, there's still a natural order of things to which she is subservient and she has to take her proper place in the world, which is away from will. But of course, Lyra has the option of grief. Lyra has, because she's human, she has the option of grieving. And that is her human way of getting over what the world has done to her. Um, because, you know, just through, you know, the world doing what the world does, at least she has the option of grief which will which means that she will be okay that, and, that, is and, how we, that is how we cope with this stuff we have that option as well and the option to carry on which yes. of grief is is obviously one one of the parts isn't it it's, it's yes. the it's it's it enables you to process it and then take the next steps into yeah. wherever yeah. your life takes you yeah and lyra will do that and she will have a life i haven't read the other books i haven't read the books he's written recently so i don't know if um uh, if if that arc is followed, the book um, of dust you're referring to. Yes, I haven't read those, so I oh, don't. No, neither have I. It's on my reading list. Yes. My wife, my wife Jo has read the first. Well, she's read the first one certainly, and she's halfway through the second one, and she says they're pretty good. Right. The first one she said was that yeah. La, La Belle Sauvage was yeah. I- incredibly good. She said yeah. so. Oh, we, get... We'll get on to that in the future, maybe. Let's yes. see. Yes. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> Can I just ask, go, go back a bit, sorry, I meant to, um, I meant to ask this before, I, I, if you think this is a logic issue rather than a thematic symbol or symbolic uh, issue, which is the, the, the further the demon becomes from, the, um, from Lyra, further Pan gets from Lyra, the more traumatic and painful it is. Um, is that, what is the point of that other than, okay, if we're separating the demon with this um, contraption, and how is how how does that add stakes? What are the stakes of that? If the you know if a demon could always be distant from the um, host, if you for want of a better phrase, yeah. Why I never I never worked that out. Um, I did notice I did note that obviously Mrs. Coulter has a different relationship with her demon than most human beings, and that obviously is, is a metaphor for her character. To be honest with you, I feel the same as you. I feel slightly perplexed by that. Could it be fear? So the the idea of the the separation is more a primal fear of being removed from your spirit, and that's what makes it that the pain is almost psychosomatic. Well, and I mean, when Mrs. Coulter is separated, where where she separates herself from the monkey, um, it's an it's an act of self-control, and she actually uses those words to, to Charles Latram. She said, it's a matter of self-control. Don't you have any self-control? Or have you never met a woman with any self-control? That's what it's... So it may be a case of fear and uh, and, and discipline. The, the, the fear of the consequences of being separated from your demon is so great that they drive the, the, uh, the physiological symptoms that, uh, that 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 people like Lyra experience. I that think could be the, that, yeah. sorry. 
I was just going to say, I think Pullman may be tapping into what is basically a universal human belief that if your soul, if you believe in a soul, if it is separated from your body, that is a bad thing. I mean, there are any number of Greek myths and any other myths um, about that topic. So maybe he's tapping into that. What that actually means psychologically, I have to admit, I don't know, because my attitude to spirits and souls is so radically <laughs> different to most other people's. What were you saying, Chris? Um, I think, I think, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, Dan, in terms of where it may come from, in terms of in-world logic, uh, in-world um, characters. But the logic of it, uh, writing it, where did the idea come from? Where, where did Philip Pullman decide? Okay, it's going to make it's going to bring in this dr- massive trauma if they're separated too far, and it's going to cause so many problems because it's not. I don't know if I'm misremembering or you know if I've gotten things. But I'm trying to think of the pertinence of that other than maybe to sort of give more weight to the, the uh, separation. And, and also just the importance of a demon to a human being. But I, I'm with you. I was I was a bit baffled by that. Yeah. Well, it could be that as you, well, by awakening yourself fully to the, the possibility of the world and the possibilities are potentially malevolent, malevolent as well as being potentially beneficial and positive then you have a degree of understanding that i suppose makes your soul at peace which is a highly religious thing really it's almost like an idea of uh, sort of zen in buddhism isn't it it's like a state a state of enlightenment it's not presented that way when mrs coulter separates herself from the golden monkey not at all well, and, and yet that is it is with it is with, with lyra and will and they, they have a sense of being uh, at, at one with the world or uh, at peace with the world. And so they're quite, they're quite happy to let their demons roam free. Uh, maybe it's to do with, with, with love, not just uh, sexual maturity, but real uh, love because they're, they're you know, you know, dangerously in love by the end of the third book um, to the extent that it's, incredibly traumatic the the final act of the book and so maybe it's something to do with that i mean i don't know i I think it's a great question and i'm feeling for the answer it's interesting that all three of us are baffled by that Mm. i'm wondering if that says that philip pullman himself may not certainly okay let's uh let's just go with the, the the you know, Occam's razor, it's a plot device and yes. it works well as a plot device. Maybe, yes. Maybe yeah. that's the authorial stamp. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> the soul is a nebulous thing anyway, so... Yeah, exactly. And we have to... It, you know, don't don't try and pin it down. It's not going to work. Right, let's take a break there. Uh, we'll join back with Stephen in a few minutes. Uh, hello, SSF Chronicles. I was wondering if you'd give me a call back. Myself and two of the lads have been abducted by aliens, and Tom is after breaking one of those, uh, you know, the big roundy things with the lights. Anyway, the aliens are pure pissed off about it. It wasn't me, you broke it. He's right. Don't let Tom. It was you who broke it. Look, it doesn't matter who broke it. The aliens aren't going to care which one of us it was. Anyway, uh, could you give me a call back when you get a chance? Now we're going to venture down to the judge's corner. Now, anyone who's been on Crons will probably have come across the judge. 
who roams the boards looking for infringements and erroneous uses of Gerens. In fact, there's a, there's a rumour going around that she keeps a black book containing the names of all such miscreants written in their own blood. I've probably got my own chapter. Anyway, her real name isn't actually the judge. Her name's Damaris Brown, but she is a real legal professional and she'll be dropping in to provide us writers and listeners with some crumbs from the vast expanses of knowledge that she's acquired over her career. She's actually a former solicitor uh, who specialised in matrimonial and general litigation work, uh, including some advocacy in local magistrates and county courts. But she's also a writer and managed to hook an agent with her first science fiction novel, which I've never seen, so it, it must be lost in her, her trunk under the bed somewhere. But alas, she lost the agent before he managed to sell any of the series. But uh, since then, she's actually published numerous short stories, notably with Crackson Online magazine, where she's had three long serials published and where she's recently been taken on as a submissions editor. So if you are submitting something into Crackson magazine, uh, which you can find details about Oncrons, then the chances are that you will have to come up before the judge. She's also contributed to several short story anthologies, and her story The Colour of Silence from the 2019 anthology Distaff was longlisted in the British Science Fiction Association Awards. This month, the judge will be talking about something all authors should know about, including me, copyright. Hi, I thought I'd start with copyright because this is an issue that worries a lot of newcomers to writing. But I've recently realised that not even experienced writers always have a full grasp of its ramifications. I'm mentioning no names, but hi, Dan. Anyway, first, a general legal caveat. I'll be talking in generalities, but there are differences in detail between legal systems and countries. If, for whatever reason, you need to take matters further, always check with a lawyer practising in your own locality. So, copyright. This is a form of intellectual property providing economic and moral rights over the use of original artistic work. Basically, that covers anything that's written, no matter how unartistic we might actually think it. So if you were following the court case between the Duchess of Sussex and the male newspapers over the letter that she wrote to her father, you'll know that actually part of her case concerned copyright because she did not give consent to the newspapers to reproduce it. And that is actually one of the basic rights under copyright, the right to govern who may reproduce or quote your work. Uh, another, for instance, is who has the right to adapt it for performance. Um, so uh, a short story being recorded by someone, for instance. This is important to writers in two ways. That first, in the rights that we have over our own work, some of which we may give away or sell, Secondly, how in our own writing we may use work that other people have created. Anyway, copyright is inherent. Uh, there's no need for us to do anything. It's there automatically as soon as we put pen to paper or we start typing. 
And that's the case in all the countries which are signatories to the Berne Convention, which includes the Americas and most of Europe and Australasia. There are some commercial organisations that encourage writers to believe they have to register their work to get copyright protection. Don't listen to them. It, it, it's not needed. Do make sure you can prove that you wrote the work and when you wrote it. Um, in times gone by, that was obviously a little more difficult than today. And what usually happened was that people would parcel up their manuscript once it was finished and send it to themselves. And there it would stay, still in its uh, envelope with the date of postage firmly stamped on it, and it would be left unopened until it was needed. Nowadays, obviously, we're always backing up our work on uh, hard drives or uh, memory sticks. Um, so that will show the progress of your work. Because even if somebody tried to argue that they had got in before you um, and written the whole thing, nobody is going to be able to show the writing of that work all the way through. So do keep various of your drafts as you're going. And, and when you've got to the end, don't delete them or keep some of them. Um, obviously, keep them on memory sticks and hard drives, but also think about emailing them to yourself or to a friend who can keep them. So you've got the proof there. I've said you don't need to register your work, but actually, if you're in the US, it is advantageous to register your copyright with the US Copyright Office, which is part of the Library of Congress. It doesn't prove your ownership of copyright, though it acts as evidence, but it does allow for enforcement of your rights because legal actions for works of US origin cannot be started in US courts without it. And it also allows courts to award certain costs and compensation that otherwise wouldn't be available. Anyway, you've got your copyright, you can prove you wrote your story, you've registered with the USCO if you're American, so now you're safe from anyone pinching your work. Well, no, sorry. The only sure way to prevent your copyright being infringed is never to let your work seen, be seen by anyone, and obviously that's self-defeating. But having a right and being able to enforce it are two very different things. You've got to find out who's pinched your work. You've got to sue them. You've got the costs of suing them. Um, you've got the cost of perhaps listening to their defence and dealing with it. Then, even worse, the cost of trying to get money out of them. And if they're overseas, everything's just doubled in cost. Frankly, for most writers, the litigation game won't be worth the candle. Nonetheless, if you're publishing, do add the copyright symbol, that's the little C in a circle, followed by your name and the year in the publishing page at the beginning of your book. In and of itself, it's no protection, but it does mean that if somebody does infringe your copyright and you do get hold of them, they can't argue that it was done in all innocence and ignorance, um, which actually might impact on the compensation awarded to you. So it's worth putting in there. Also, using the symbol makes it clear who should be contacted if anyone wants to quote your work. And that is the second relevance that copyright has for us as writers, how it might interfere with us using work that someone else has written, 
because we want to add meaning or significance to our work or just take a bit of, of reflected glory from quoting it. There's always been a tension between propriety rights on the one hand and the public interest in allowing creativity to flourish on the other. And the Berne Convention allows for a right to quote, provided that A, the quote is of reasonable length, but reasonable is going to vary from case to case as well as country to country. And B, the copyrighted extract is clearly acknowledged as such and fully referenced. So if you want to use part of a poem which hasn't yet passed into the public domain, you should be fine if it's very short extract, a line or two say, but you must refer to the poet or the copyright holder, if, that's diff if that person's different, in the publishing details page at the beginning of your book or perhaps in the acknowledgements page. So long as you get out there that you are quoting someone else uh, and giving the full details. In the UK and some Commonwealth countries, this right to quote is in effectively incorporated into the legal concept of fair dealing. And the US has a similar concept of fair use. The, again, there are differences between the rules in the different countries, but very broadly, the courts are always going to look at how much is quoted and for what purpose. And there are often exemptions for the purposes of parody pastiche or satire. So if you're taking somebody off, you should be fine uh, for that. But exactly how much can you quote? As far as I'm aware, there's no case law setting out precise limits because every case is going to vary. But a UK court will take into account whether the market for the original work is affected i.e. would the copyright owner lose income because you've quoted a line or two, which, you know, isn't going to be the case if it's only a line or two. But obviously, if you're quoting huge chunks of it, that's a different matter. Also, the court will take into account whether the amount quoted is appropriate and not substantial. But that substantial is defined by quality as well as quantity. A few short but juicy extracts from a long letter may well be in breach if those extracts have a considerable impact on other people. And again, with reference to the Duchess of Sussex's case, the male newspapers actually quoted a lot from her letter. But even if they'd restricted themselves to just one or two quotes, they probably would still have been liable for breach of copyright because of the impact on her and her family. So there are two areas to watch. So, as I've said, the letters, the copyright remains with the author, i.e. the Duchess of Sussex, in, in the case we've been talking about, even though the letter itself is possessed by someone else and you can read it because they've given it to you. The big area, though, if you're thinking of quoting song lyrics, think again. Logically, there's no difference between quoting from a poem and quoting from a song. But by and large, poets aren't litigious, but music publishers are. If you want to avoid any chance of getting a threatening letter, don't use any lyric unless it's in the public domain. Paraphrase or write your own songs. If you feel it's important to quote a few words, perhaps as much as a line, well, 
it's your risk if you want to take it. If you want to quote more than a line of a lyric or more than a reasonable amount of a poem or any other work, you will need consent. And as far as music publishers are concerned, that consent will come at a price. Whether a work is in the public domain depends on what, it's, what is being protected and where the copyright is claimed. In the UK, written work is protected for 70 years from the author's death, which is why Jane Austen's work can be ripped off by all and sundry, because she's been dead longer than that. She's been dead a long, long while. If there are two more people who wrote the work and their contributions can't be distinguished, then is the death of the last surviving author. In the US and Australia, it's a little more complicated and it depends when the work was published and when the author died. But mostly it is the same 70 years after the author's death. There is actually an exception in the UK known as the 2039 rule to, to this. Um, some unpublished works are protected until 2039 if the author died before 1918. So if you happen to find a never before published manuscript by Jane Austen and you want to publish it today, you will need the consent of whoever now owns her rights, despite the fact that she died well, two centuries ago. So the moral is sit tight and to, until 2040, and then you can publish it without any problems at all. Whether a work is in the public domain, how do you find out? Well, check for the author's year of death. That's, that's your first recourse. But do beware that in the UK, there is one case of perpetual copyright, and that's J.M. Barry's play, Peter Pan. All the royalties of that are assigned to the Great Ormond Street Hospital in perpetuity. Lyrics and music might be complicated. So if you want to check whether they're in the public domain, there are two organisations, the Petrucci Music Library and the Choral Public Domain Library. There are some things that are not protected by copyright. So titles, not even song titles, as far as I'm aware, words and phrases in common usage and ideas. It's the expression of those ideas that is copyrighted, not the ideas themselves. But copyright might not extend to those things, but they could be trademarked. Trademarks aren't given automatically. They have to be applied for. And there are a whole host of rules about what you can do and, and how it's done. And it's really not worth the hassle and cost unless you're a Terry Pratchett or J.K. Rowling and you need to protect your brand or you're seeking commercial tie-ups to make toys or something. If this is you, well, you need a lot more help than I can give. But trademarks will impact on us as ordinary mortals because some authors and organisations have trademark distinctive words. So Discworld, Star Trek, Star Wars, they're trademarked. So I can talk about them, but I can't, for instance, publish a story with those words blazoned on the cover. The UK does have a database of trademarks. You can search online for it at the Intellectual Property Office. Um, and that reveals, for instance, that the word droid was registered in 2009 and 2015 and Space Marine in 1991 and 1996. 
but only in relation to certain classes. So do those words cover what you might want to use them for? Well, if you're writing, probably yes, but I don't know. If you want to name a paint colour after them, perhaps not. You'd have to check. Now, economic rights provided by copyright can be transferred, as I've said, e.g. by sale. But an author also has moral rights, and in the UK they can't be sold or given away, though they can be waived. The first of them is the right to be identified as the author of the work, but that does need to be asserted. So if you're publishing, do include a moral rights clause in the publishing details page of your work um, alongside your copyright. The moral rights also include the right to object to derogatory treatment of your work, which is defined as any alteration to a work which amounts to a distortion or mutilation of it, or is otherwise prejudicial to the honour or reputation of the author. And I would so love to read a court report on a case where that's been claimed. There's also a right to object to a false attribution, which I also think is funny, i.e. being named as the author of a work that you didn't write, and the mind fairly boggles at that one. But anyway, no false attribution here, because this is mine, all mine, uh, but that ends this very brief tour of copyright. Uh, hello, I left a message to you earlier. There's three of us stuck up here on a damaged starship, and one of the aliens is after throwing the head altogether. Ah! Jesus! It's your Dennis! What's that? A ray gun! What kind of ray gun? I don't know, a regular one! What do you mean, a regular one? How the fiddlesticks am I supposed to know what a regular ray gun is? Well, how am I supposed to know either? We're all gonna die! One of the things Chris and I wanted to feature on Cronscast were the writing challenges that is one of the central parts of the SFF Chronicles forum. Uh, Their monthly challenges, either 75 or 300 word stories uh, and a genre and a theme is chosen. So everybody is writing onto the same the same script, essentially. And we came up with the idea of offering the winners of each monthly challenge the option to record their entry their winning entry and send it into us so that it could be played on the podcast and i'm delighted to say that we have uh, our first winner our first broadcast winner the theme from december was a christmas carol and the genre was open and the winner was cat's cradle with his entry silent silent by cat's cradle The photograph was captioned, Community Outreach. Young people dressed as elves, my mother, front and center, stood singing to tables of senior citizens who smiled, looked confused, or cried. I carried Mum's yearbook into the nursing home, hopeful its memories might reach her. I found her sitting with other Alzheimer's patients. She saw the choir photo and smiled, started singing, Silent Night. Silent night. I glanced around her table. People smiled, or looked confused, or cried. We should be safe in here. Is there many of them still about? I'll take a look. Well, but it's still out there. Yes. How many? I don't know. Loads. What do you mean, loads? Did you ever think of counting them? We're going to die up here. Relax. 
bound to be a simple solution to this. I'll give the SSF crowd away again. There's nothing that they don't know about spaceships. Ah, but! What's wrong? I'm not getting their answering machine again. I had this sense that you know what it's like when you're dealing with people online on forums and stuff and the science fiction and fantasy chronicles um forum mm. are very active but you're one of the lesser active members in turn or you drop in and you might drop a, a, a zen wisdom sentence and then disappear <laughs> for a few weeks yeah you're you don't realize that this is a perception that you have Steve. you've <laughs> got this perception of being this sort of uh no gnomic visitor in the night who will sort of <laughs> drop into one of the forums write one sort of Buddhist line of, of wisdom and then disappear again for many weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, when I, when I uh, was doing my research for this and I was looking at your website and looking at Goodreads and all the stuff on the internet, I was really surprised. I knew you'd done a lot of material. You'd had a lot of material. I, would, I wasn't, um, I wasn't prepared, you know, for these 17, I think it is. And the short stories and the, you know, the prose poem, um, you, how is it you're so prolific you know if, if you're saying luck is so important how can then you is it pro, pro, uh, being prolific and having luck how have you um well i suppose to start off with um i am quite old um i'm i'm coming up to my 60th birthday um so i've been doing this for quite a long time um and you know i was first published 25 years ago so that's quite a long time um so um there's that element um also um when i was a younger man um i i was married um but i didn't have children with my my then wife uh, i'm divorced now um so because me and my ex didn't have children uh, my my ex-wife was um, a really gifted artist so we both had very strong um drives to sort of you know be be artists and 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 you know, have some measure of success as artists. We did discuss having children, but we, we both kind of sat on the fence and it just never really happened. So being brutally honest, the fact that I didn't have children through my 30s and 40s gave me a lot more time than most people have. So that that has fed into the fact that I've been able to write more novels than perhaps other people. Um, but I suppose the main thing that... that I could talk about here is that um, I am by inclination, by nature, just extremely creative. I, I, I just have this very, very strong drive to to create stuff. Um, and, you know, um, I do a bit of music, but mostly my main stuff that I do is is writing. Um, that's what I decided I want to be in my mid-twenties. I, I had this epiphany when I was 26. Oh, I'll be it. I'll, I'll, you know, I was creating stuff then. Um, in, I kind of was kind of involved with role-playing games, but in a very unusual way. I was never a player. I was always the dungeon master, but I wasn't really a D&D player. I just had my own stuff that I was creating. And where this stuff was coming from, I, I don't really know. But then in my mid-20s, I just realised that I could be doing more with this. Um, and as a fan of fantasy and science fiction, I just thought, oh, I'll try and write a novel. Yeah, so, well, it's, it's, it's more than, like Chris said, there's more than just the novels. I mean, you're, you're ex I've seen that you're experimenting with uh, with some filmmaking at, at the uh, at the moment. I'm, I'm trying condition. to. Is this is conditioned human, right? Yeah, I'm trying to. Can you tell to. us about that? Yeah, well, COVID has kind of put the kibosh on that for the moment because um, 
Um, well, really, this is this is this links into my interest in why, what is, what are we? Who are we? Why are we human human beings? I've always been interested in what consciousness is, and I was extremely lucky in the mid 1980s to see Nicholas Humphrey's um, groundbreaking Channel Four television series, The Inner Eye. Um, I am I am a huge huge fan of Nicholas Humphrey. I think he is an unrecognised genius of the level of Darwin and people like that. He's quite exceptional. Um, he proposed what is known as the social intelligence theory of consciousness. Um, and through the 80s and into the 90s and up to about 2010, he has written about five or six books on the nature of consciousness, all of which are profoundly brilliant. Um, his, his ideas are not generally accepted. Um, his base idea of the social intelligence theory of consciousness is generally accepted, but some of the other ideas that he's had to explain the more difficult aspects of consciousness, for instance, what qualia are. So, you know, when we experience red in our minds, what is that? So he ha he does have an answer to that, but it's not an answer that everyone agrees with. So um, how does this relate to, to the films then? What are you, try what are you trying to achieve well, with the films? I, I, try I made four attempts to write a non-fiction book about my ideas about how I could synthesize Nicholas Humphrey's ideas about human consciousness with Eric Fromm's ideas about the human condition and my own ideas about the human condition. I mean, I didn't just take those ideas. I, I had my own ideas. And I failed four times over a period of about 30 years. So about five, three, four, five years ago, I just thought, OK, this isn't working. Why don't I? Maybe it's the medium that is wrong. So I have made films in the past. I, I, I had a band for 25 years and I made um, I, I was notoriously um, unwilling to talk about myself and the music that my band made. So um, to surprise my fans on the 20th anniversary of my of me starting my band, up, I, I, I basically made I, just with a camcorder. I made a documentary. I visited all the all the musicians that I'd worked with in their in their houses and I filmed them talking about the band. Um, and I had a fantastic time. It was such enormous fun making this, seeing all my friends, having a laugh, filming the stuff, and then editing. Because editing is the creative bit. It was enormous fun. So uh, that that gave that gave me the interest in filmmaking. And then, then about three or four, five years ago, I just thought, okay, maybe the medium's wrong. Why don't I try and make put up the essence of my ideas into six short films? So my idea was to have six short films of 20 minutes each where I would speak to camera where possible um, and basically give the essence of my ideas of what what a human being is, why we are conscious, what the important aspects of the human condition are, what my beliefs are about those things, and then present them in a film. So it would be an artistic film. There would be artistic interludes, but it, a lot of it would be me talking um either as a voiceover or to camera. Interesting. So I wrote the scripts and I wrote, I blocked it all out as filmmakers block out, you know, in, in, in boxes. Um, and I just did the first little bit of filming when COVID struck. So essentially it's on, it's been on hold for about a year and a half. I, I will go back to it at some point. I've had a very difficult year in my personal life, my private life. Um, so that's fed into it as well, but I am hoping next year or the year after to go back to that. All the scripts are written, all the film directions are written, all the music's done, 
I've done all the voiceovers. They're all, all the voiceovers are recorded, but I haven't actually been able to film anything because I haven't been able to get out for various reasons. It sounds but, very interesting. Yeah. But, you, but you you have managed to, I mean, you said you attempted, what, four times to write the, the, the book, but uh, I you just have completed a non-fiction book in the <laughs> yes. past year, haven't you? Yes. Well, Which was about Tangerine Dream. Yeah, again, that came, I mean, you know, I'll say it again, that came about through pure luck. Um, I, I'm a big fan of a band called Renaissance, uh, who you may remember had a huge hit, Northern Lights, in the late 70s, mm. uh, with Annie Haslam singing an absolutely gorgeous song. Um, and um, their songwriter, Michael Dunford, was a really brilliant man. He was a, a writer of melody, like very, very few writers. So I love that band. So when I found out by accident that... Um, Sonic Bond had published a, a book about Renaissance's music, the first book actually about their music. I bought it straight away. Um, and then in the back, it just said, if you um, want to write about um, a band that you like, you might like to approach us and pitch us an idea. Um, so um, I did that. I wrote to Stephen Lamb um, and said, okay, I adore Tangerine Dream, love Klaus Schulzer, very big fan of Osric Tentacles. Why don't I write one of those? And he took me on. So it was great fun. I, I, I yeah, I, I wrote the book about Tangerine Dream. The, the, the Tangerine Dreamer, yeah. I guess they've experienced a bit of a, a renaissance in recent years, haven't they? Because wasn't some of their music used on Stranger Things, the Netflix show? Um, I don't know. I I watch very little TV. Um, <laughs> and never I'm pretty sure it was. I'm not yeah. sure if they recorded new tracks for it or whether some old some of the older stuff was used. But uh, probably new stuff, Dan, because Eric um uh, Edgar Froza died in twenty fifteen. Uh, absolutely tragically I was I was utterly gutted when, when I found that out. Um, but the band has had a renaissance recently with, with um, because because Edgar wanted the band to continue without him. So um, there are some very proactive members in that band now doing stuff, and and they are, you know, they're they're writing and recording new material, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if their music was being used. So t- tell us about the the novels that you've got uh, in the pipeline. I know is it uh, Cybergon, isn't it? The one about uh, the social media, is that right? Yeah. Um. Again, that was um um. That was the most extraordinary stroke of luck. Um, I was, um, I was, I was on basically on a. Yeah, at some point, Stephen, I'm going to ask you, you know, what advice? You know, you've you've published twenty odd novels over um, X number of years, and uh, yeah. you must have a great deal of insight into what it takes you. you know, I can't let you off the hook by just saying, "Well, it's just down to luck, really." Well, look, all right, let me let me be serious. I mean, there is a huge amount of luck involved in this, but you do have to have what I would say, and what I say when I when I talk about this to you know to, to people who want to hear me, um, is that all authors, all true authors, do have to have something to say. They have to have something very deep and very urgent inside them that has to come out through the vehicle of words. And if you look at J.K. Rowling or Philip Pullman or any major author who who is who has, you know, has got um, more than just one book out, has a series of books out or, you know, has passion for a particular aspect of life, that will be what is coming out in their novels. So, so I would say that, you know, to make that leap from writer to author, you've got to have something inside you that has just got to come out. And I do feel that's true about myself. So I have, you know, 
all these interests I have in, in why we are human and the relationship between religion and atheist thought and many other, you know, ideas of those of those type. Those are the themes of my work. Um, regardless of what the setting might be, the actual theme will be some, well, something big like that. Um, so I guess the best example is probably the Factory Girl trilogy. Um, so that is, I think that's possibly the book I'm most proud of, to use, to use that word, um, happy with. Can you tell us a little bit about the Factory Girl trilogy then? It, um, it, it was, I was basically, I, I had the title of the first book in my head for a year. The girl with two this souls. Girl with two souls. Yeah. Now, that just that title, just that title intrigued me. Who is this girl, and why does she have two souls? So this basically related to to the kind of things I think about in my daily life about souls and spirits, all these interesting concepts. And then about a year later, I was watching Channel Four News, and I suddenly suddenly ideas started to fill. This is in the in late quite late evening, you know, eight o'clock at night. Uh, ideas just started suddenly coming down into my mind about this about a scenario and a character that might be this girl with two souls. And after about five minutes, I suddenly realised that there was lots of ideas coming all at once that I really ought to write down. So I ran into my study, grabbed an empty notebook, grabbed a pen, muted the TV and just started to write this stuff down as it was coming to me. Um, and I just carried on writing and writing and writing. And I did about seven or eight pages and it seemed to me as though about 20 minutes had passed. I'd written all this stuff down. Actually, two hours had passed. I looked up and it was 10 o'clock at night. And I'd I had put down the, the template for the entire trilogy. It, it hardly changed when I actually came to write it. Uh, I, I really, I'm a very strong believer in the idea that our subconscious minds are doing a huge amount of the work for us. Um, yes. I think this definitely. is particularly true of authors. It's really important to, to listen to your subconscious when it has something to say and to almost take dictation from your subconscious. Yeah. Um, I feel that I did that in that in that two hours on that, that extraordinary evening. I felt I was taking dictation from my subconscious and getting this. From your demon? Yes, maybe. Yes. Well, yes, actually, you're right, because this novel, this trilogy says an awful lot about me. It is very much... I, I put absolutely everything into it that I could, um, everything, um, and, and I feel very, very attached to it. It's a, it's a work that I am really proud of. So can yes, I, Chris, can I just say um, that comes back to your earlier point for me when you're talking about you know like Dan giving a hard time saying, "Come on, it's not just luck. Give us an answer or give us something." Um, you're saying this trilogy is most reflective of you and your inner state or whatever, you know, yeah. your, your mindset is. Um, and I think that speaks to the larger thing about, or the, an equally large thing is it's not just a case of having something to say. It's about having lived a life or having live, having experiences because I, I, I notice with a lot of beginner authors, I, I don't sorry, not beginner authors, but younger authors or writers rather, there is a lot of, uh, escapism or vanity or fantasy fantasizing and it comes from a lack of having experience i know this sounds so incredibly not elitist but supercilious but because i'm hardly a, a well-known author myself but having gone through a rather charmed life maybe and not suffered 
certain experiences maybe that have or, or, or suffered certain um, opinions um, from other people being surrounded by something interesting whether that's from your parents your grandparents or from you know just everyday life I feel you don't have to have had a dramatic life but you have to have been observant and aware of life to to write and it's not just this escapism oh I like you know sword and sandals so I'm going to write that stuff I very much agree Chris I very much agree yes I think you're spot on there yeah well the 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 central themes of human life don't change over tens of thousands of years that's why you know we were talking you know in northern lights that's why the the 30,000 year old story about Adam and Eve it still stands up even though there's no no logic to it yeah. on a, a purely superficial level but if you dig down into it then well actually there's quite a lot going on there and it, it still stands up so you you live your life and even if you don't think you've done much in your life life will still do things to you whether you like it or not and you'll pick these things up and all of a sudden you have a you you'll find when you're writing you have an armory of things that you know all of a sudden about the way that people are that you can pack into your work. Yeah. And how this often is does that why... come to you? Oh, sorry, Chris. Uh, I was saying, how often does that come to you? You know, that, that sort of download for um, the Factory Girl trilo- you know, trilogy. How often did you experience that? Quite rarely. Yeah. Um, I experienced it for Memory Seed, my debut. Um, I, um, I had it for um, a novel called Moets in Land, which was not well received, but was my, my passion for Africa and African music in particular. Um, I also had it for Tommy Catkins. Um, I was listening to um, uh, Trick of the Tale by Genesis, and there are three songs on that album which, um, purely by chance, managed to sort of um, contain the ideas that I was thinking about. It was the most weird thing. Um, the idea about um, Freudian, um, Freudian slumbers in Entangled and water in Ripples and uh, Madman Moon. Those ideas kind of emphasised themes that I was thinking about and gave me the idea of the World War I soldier returning from the Western Front to this mysterious island hospital in Wiltshire in the middle of a river. Um, again, that was a very, very specific and, and mm. very strange personal event. I was literally lying on the sofa with the lights out in almost complete darkness, listening to A Trick of the Tale, thinking about what I might want to write next. And these three songs managed to encompass what I was thinking about. It was the weirdest thing. And I was living at the time in a town in Shropshire called Wem. And Wem basically is in North Flat, North Shropshire, in what was formerly marshland. The area regularly floods. And even that fed into what I was writing about, this, the, the, you know, what, how we think about water and what water represents. It was the weirdest thing. But I, I think that's another of my favourite novels, that one. I, that's a novel that I wouldn't mind reading myself. I, I never read my own stuff ever. But I wouldn't mind getting a book of Tommy Catkins and reading it because it's, it's, it, there's something about it which is different. Interesting, yeah. I think um, those that Quicksilver, that, sorry, not Quicksilver, that lightning that comes sometimes, it, this is, are those stories that you contrive and then there are those stories which write themselves. Yes. And those are the ones that are, it's lovely when it just is, and you put up your aerial and it just downloads yeah. uh, into you. Uh, it's just wonderful. 
And I, I think, think because we are we are all, you know, we are all characters, aren't we? We all write our own story. And so we have certain themes and ideas and tales which are deeply relevant to us. And those are the tales that our subconsciouses tell us. And it doesn't always happen that way, doesn't it? You know, it, it, a lot of the time it's a difficult process and the birth can be uh, protracted. So when it does start to flow, uh, it's a good feeling. Yeah. And I, I think that's, um, you know, that's instructive to just keep trying because the more you write, the easier mm. it, it is to get into that state of it flowing more easily. Yeah. More I, I must point out. Are. I must point out that even though I've written quite a lot of novels, some of them are crap. I mean, you know, I have, I have written some rubbish as well. Um, so, you know, let's not let's look at that side as well. Well, let's let's ignore those ones. And, <laughs> we're, let, we're our own worst critics anyway. So, yeah, let's talk about Cybergon. And when I heard the title, I, I, I had a flashback to being at university and, and reading Antigone, uh, part of the um, Sophocles uh, trilogy. So I thought, oh, it must be pronounced Cybergony. It's <laughs> oh, right. Cybergon, isn't it? It's Cybergon, yeah. yeah Cybergon. Um, it's basically a little idiom which is used in the novel to 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 um, describe um, something that I call END, Empathy Negation Disorder. Um, so um, I've been interested in Chinese society for quite some time. And I, it struck me that the Chinese use of the internet is highly unusual. Um, it's it's free within China. It's almost Western within China, but the Chinese have have huge barriers around it and over it. Uh, one's called the Golden Wall, and uh, the other one's called the Golden Shield. So there's this extraordinary, unique dilemma in China where they have this this Western style freedom and this communist style repression, and it's all it's all the the great metaphor of that at the moment is the internet in China. Um, and I, I've been struck for many years about how social media and the digital world in, in general is affecting how young people develop. Um, I do work with young people in my day job. I, I work at a school and I've worked in education most of my life. Uh, and maybe this is because I'm, you know, an older man now. But um, to my mind, social media and young people is a more damaging thing than a health. I mean, there are some good aspects to social media. I, I would never deny that. But I think I just feel that on balance, particularly for young people, the dangers are, are more dangerous than the benefits. So mm. I put together this, um, this imaginary Chinese affliction, empathy negation disorder, where, where because of um, the way the digital world works, um, for instance, in making um, individuals anonymous, um, then there's the whole aspect of identity on the internet, which is far more free-flowing than in normal human interaction. I put all these ideas together to create um, a, a Chinese family um, where the son, the young son, I think he's 11, has got END. So basically this guy, this child's father, who happens to be a, a technology expert, has to find out what the actual cause of this condition is because the Communist Party have simply denied it even exists. Um, so, I, I think it's it, it sounds very pertinent. I, I social media is is still so young. It's almost like uh, well, we're, we're definitely still in the wild wild west era of social media. In the in the same instance that you know the the in the the gold rush era of the actual wild wild west, there was 
marked by lawlessness and um, exploitation and uh, rampant, capitalism, rampant, rampant sort of corrupted uh, hyper capitalism as well, and the fleecing of the people who are trying to get rich in the, in, in the Yukon and places like that in California. Um, and we don't know. There's not enough. We don't have enough data of, of the effects of social media. The the time span that we have of of uh, its operation since Facebook um, exploded and then Twitter followed it. We, the time span is too short. We don't know. But um, it would be a great thing to to have a, a specific uh, podcast back with Stephen again, coming back and talk about this. Yeah. Well, be, it's um, well, 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 let's let's um, get to the book. Let's get back to the book. When is it coming out? Um, I don't know yet. I've only just sold it. Um, I, I, as I say, I, I, by an extraordinary stroke of luck, I happened to be on um, a particular Facebook group one evening, and um, the the American lady who runs the group just said, "Oh." My publisher is looking for novels, so I sent I sent Cybergon across, and he he said yes, pretty much straight away. I don't well, even know. I think he did he did read it obviously, but um, um, it was about a week I think. Um, so, so there you go. So that's your a golden piece of advice. If you're looking to get published, get onto Facebook. I mean, <laughs> there's a serious. The, the, my, my, my serious advice, would especially be, if you're selling a book about the evils of social media. Yeah, my my serious advice would, be, would just be never give up. I've I've almost given up twice in my writing career. There were there was a time at the start of the two thousands, and then around about two thousand and six seven, where I almost gave up because I was getting absolutely nowhere, and it was just deeply depressing. Uh, I would echo that. Perseverance is key. I think that's that's probably a good note on which to end. I've just got one more very quick question, and that is, what form would your demon take? Um, I've been asked that before, and I think it would be a raven. A raven, good choice. Now, I know what Chris thinks mine would be. Chris <laughs> thinks mine would be a nudibranch. <laughs> yeah, but... It wouldn't be a nudie prank. I think it, I, can't remember, I can't. I can't believe you remember that. <laughs> well, why would I forget somebody calling me uh, a, or my animalistic avatar a nudie prank? Flatworms or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's some sort of hermaphroditic flatworm. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine would be a rooster. It wouldn't be a nudie prank. Oh, okay, nice. And Chris, what would yours be? Uh, well, I, I, I'd, well, I'd like it to be a pike, but. It would probably be. I think it'd be one of those birds of paradise who do all the fancy dancing. <laughs> yeah, some fabulous <laughs> bird of paradise that couldn't fly but looked really good. <laughs> it's got all the moves, though, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, Stephen. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been really interesting. It really it's, been, has. it's been a real pleasure, and um, good luck with everything you're working on. It sounds like you've got many irons in the fire, and um, I'm really interested in seeing how they all pan out so thanks once again Brilliant. well and i really hope we can much. yeah thanks very much for having me you've been really interesting chaps to talk to and i've had a lovely time so thank you very much this episode of cronscast was brought to you by dan jones and chris bean and this month's guest stephen palmer Additional content was prepared by Damaris Brown, Brian Sexton, and Katz Cradle. Special thanks to Brian Turner and the staff at Crons. Lastly, thank you for listening, and don't forget to sign up to the world's largest SFF community at sffchronicles.com.